Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. My heart's desire. You can't forget that part. My heart's desire and my prayer to God is for their salvation. Now, think of it. Paul here is speaking about the people who had grown to hate him with much passion. Why? Because he abandoned the Jewish pharisaical faith. He, he jumped over to the dark side in their minds. And yet, his love for them was ever impassioned. He did not hate them because of their hatred for him. He had a deep love for the Jews. Paul's prayer here, and this is so important, Paul's prayer is formed, this is point number one, Paul's prayer is formed by the gospel. It's not formed by his understanding of those that he loves. It's formulated in the essence of the gospel. He wants them to be saved. He longs for them to be saved. We showed you this from numerous texts. Paul says, back in Romans 1, I am eager to preach the gospel to you also who are in Rome. He's speaking here primarily to Christians. Now, why does he long for the ability to preach the gospel to Christians who are already saved by the gospel? I can think of three solid reasons right now. Number one, he wants them to be sanctified. And when I say number one, that's just the first one I thought of. But he wants them to be sanctified. But why does he want them to be sanctified? So that, he, so that they can evangelize effectively. But why does he want them to be sanctified? And why does he want them to be evangelized effectively, others? Because that's what results in God's glory. Paul's heart longed for the glory of God to be on full display. And how does that happen? It happens through evangelism. It happens through the edification of the church that evangelism would happen effectively. So Paul says, I longed to be there with you to preach the gospel to you. You know this from verse 16, chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it... The gospel is the power of God for salvation. You hear all kinds of messages today under the guise of evangelism. Evangelism is the declaration of the gospel. And in so many settings, you'll find people who don't know what the gospel is. What's your church devoted to? Oh, we're an evangelistic church. Oh, oh fantastic, that's great. So what is the gospel of evangelism? Well, it's the good news. Well, that's not untrue, it's just not helpful. You say, well, of course it's helpful because you call it good news. It's not, one of my point is it's not helpful if you stop there. Embrace the good news. Let's go get ice cream. Right? No, you, you want people to know what that good news is. So yes, euangelion means good news, but there's content. The people need to hear that content. They can't be saved without hearing that content. The gospel must be delivered. There's no such thing as a person being justified by grace through faith by bypassing the gospel. They have to hear and embrace the gospel. It's the only way it happens. And yet, you and I live in a culture where what I'm saying to you right now is foreign. It's the anti-message of many churches. 
the idea that you have to hear the gospel to be a Christian. Paul says it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to all those who believe, first to the Jew, then to the Greek. So it's important that we understand that as Paul prays, he's not simply praying a prayer that is formulated by some sort of natural familial love for the people in his family and his neighborhood and elsewhere people he meets on mission trips. It's formed by his understanding of the exclusivity of the gospel. That's what that prayer is born out of. Number two, it's framed by the Holy Spirit. It's framed by the Holy Spirit from Romans 8, displaying the fact that the Holy Spirit prays in, in groanings that are uh, too deep for us to comprehend. They're theologically of such great depth that we don't, we don't really understand. Romans eight twenty six. likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. In other words, there are times where you, you, you feel like, Lord, <laughs> I don't even know what to pray. I'm not thinking real theologically right now. I can't really get a grasp on what you would have me grasp in your word. This isn't mystical. It isn't the idea that something strange is going on. It is the idea that you are weak and so am I. So the Spirit of God does what he does with perfection. And so he frames a prayer life. He frames the structure of prayer in such a way that we can look at it and say, that's what my prayer life ought to be like. Where do we get information from the Spirit of God? You get it from the Word. You get it from the Word. You want to know what the Spirit of God would pray? It would be that people would be saved by the gospel. Verse 27, Romans 8, says, The Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. There's much, much, much too effort being spent today on the idea of knowing what God's will is outside of the Scripture. What's God's will for me in my career? What's God's will for me as far as who to marry? What's God's will for me as, as far as you know, which car to buy and things like that? God's will is distinctly declared in such a way that you can lean on it, depend on it, know it well, and cling to it. But unfortunately, there is an emphasis today, a great emphasis today on the idea that, well, whatever's in the Bible, that's all good and everything, but you want to know what God's will is for your life because you're so important. No. Just cling to what God's Word says. That's how you can know what the will of God is. I keep a little list in the back of my Bible of some 20 or so places where the term, the will of God, is, is written. You want to know what the will of God is? Go to your concordance and look for will of God. The sad, sad reality is that in many, many circumstances, those who are looking for the will of God outside of the Scripture couldn't begin to tell you what the will of God in the Scripture is. You will find massive satisfaction in your life with the Lord. If you will hone in on those passages, you want a copy of this list, I'll give it to you. Or you probably have a concordance where you can get it yourself. Focus in on this. I'll give you one example. I mentioned it last week, 1 Thessalonians 4. This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. How about that? How about focus on that for six weeks? How about just meditate on what it means to be cleansed? What it means to be less like self and more like Christ? What it means to display the glory of Jesus Christ in your heart? That you would find yourself being conformed to the image 
of Jesus Christ, that you would, as we memorized last week, be conformed to his death, that your life would accurately exhibit by its conduct, by its patterns, the death, the sacrificial loving death of Jesus Christ. There's no greater love than that, that a man lay down his life for his friend or for his brother. That's, that's, what, you, that's what you should be focusing on. That's what God's will is. And then you see a, a counter-expression there in that same text in 1 Thessalonians 4 of what sanctification is not, and it's sexual immorality. And we live in a society that says, you know, whatever. Just enjoy. So that message, when fully embraced by the believer that sanctification is the will of God, and then he is willing or she is willing to engage in a willingness to to recognize the reality that uh, sexual immorality, any measure of fornication, (laughs) will completely disable you when it comes to understanding and submitting to the will of God. See, that's just one example. There are many in the Scripture with regard to that specific verbiage, uh, the will of God. But it's important to understand that Paul's prayer, when he prayed for the salvation of the Jews, that prayer was formed by the gospel, but it was also framed by the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit pray for when you and I in our weakness don't know what to pray, don't know how to pray? The Holy Spirit would pray for what's in the Scripture, which is displayed as the will of God. That's what Romans 8 tells us. He who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. You want to have an active and evangelistically effective prayer life? Plead with the Holy Spirit to frame your prayer life. Plead with Him to help you know how to pray, whether you're driving in your car or sitting at your desk at work or at school or laying down to sleep at night or getting up in the morning or having lunch or whatever it is. Plead with the Spirit of God to frame your prayer life that it would be effectively evangelistic. Point three, Paul's prayer was founded in eternal love. It's founded in eternal love. You know from Romans 8, verse 28, we know that God causes all things to work together for good, for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. You know, that part always gets left out. Not always. Many times gets left out. All things work together for good. Really? How about read the rest of the, the section there that's so important. All things work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. God has called some unto himself, and they will all come unto him. You know this from, from John. We memorized this a few weeks. that you know, Jesus said these words, All those the Father has given to me will come unto me. All of them. And I will in no way cast them out. This is love from eternity past. Paul's prayer is founded in eternal love. Not his eternal love, God's eternal love. Further in Romans 8, verse 35, who will separate us from the love of Christ? 
Who, who can do that when Christ's love is the foundation of evangelism? When it's the foundation of evangelistic prayer, when Christ's love in eternity passed, that he determined to set his special love upon some, you cannot be separated from that. And that's the whole idea at the end of Romans 8. He says, uh, who will separate us from the love of Christ? Well, tribulation? Well, no. I mean, tribulation feels like it, right? It feels like you're separated from the love of Christ. Will distress, will persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? Right? Can death, that's the whole point, the sword, can death separate you? If you have the love of God from eternity past, can death separate you from that love? Verse 36, just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. You know, that's, that's, that's love from eternity past manifesting itself in an earthly time frame. Paul is saying, we were willing to die for you, Romans. We would give our lives for you because Christ gave his life for us. That kind of love, that eternal love, pre-temporal love, love from eternity past, manifests itself in a permanence in our lives today such that we would increasingly become that person who would, in fact, display that love, prove that love that is uh, love uh, that can't be compared to any other. Greater love hath no man than this, that he lay down his life for his brother. Verse 37, But in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. How do, how do we conquer? Because we know He loves us. We can hang in there. We can resist sin. We can encourage others. We can strengthen them. We can sacrifice for them even when they're angry with us. We can be patient with them when, when there's a clear awkwardness because they've not talked to us for a while and we don't know why. Verse 37, but in all these things we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come. In other words, the things that scare you now and make you think that God's love has evaded you are no less or more powerful than things to come. But the things right now are the things that tend to intimidate us the most until we start thinking about things that are in the future. Okay, I kind of got a handle on things right now, but oh my word, Monday's coming. Or that bill is coming. Or that interaction is coming. So Paul says, neither things present, neither things future, nor powers, nor height, nor depth. He just runs the gamut of anything you could possibly think of in general categories. Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. You see, Paul's prayer is founded in and therefore derived from the certainty of God's pre-temporal electing love. We pointed out to you just a few weeks ago that Christ's blood was not wasted on anybody. It is propitiatory. It certainly results in the salvation of all of those for whom it was spilled. And I want you to think of this this way. If that's not true, and what is true is that Christ's blood was spilt, his death was for everybody, then there are people in hell today being punished for a penalty that Christ paid. You believe that? Is that what you believe? 
Christ's love is a particular love. It is a special love. And it is a propitiatory, in other words, a certainly satisfying love. If not, then there are people today and there will be more people in hell suffering and paying for what Christ already paid for. Did he pay for their sins or not? If he paid for them, they don't go to hell. That's the special love that the elect and the elect alone have. How then can we not share that message with everyone? How can we not plead with God to save everyone we know? Unless, of course, we somehow have an elitist mindset that we earned that special love. Then we, we start thinking thoughts like, well, you know, doctrine of election, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be which denies all the commands in the Scripture to live a sacrificial, others-focused life. Paul's prayer was founded in this eternal love. It wasn't founded in his love. That would be hit and miss at best. It was founded in this eternal love. That was his focus. He would consistently go back to Christ's love to point out the fact in Romans 9, if you haven't read it, the reality that God has mercy upon whom he has mercy, has compassion upon whom he has compassion. It's not for you and me to figure out all the ins and outs of why, except to know that it's according to the counsel of his will, according to Ephesians 1. It's according to the counsel of his will, his kindness in his will. Point number four. So we've said that Paul's prayer is formed by the gospel, framed by the Holy Spirit. That's the structure of Paul's prayer. It should be the structure of your prayer, my prayer. We also said that it's founded in eternal love. Point four, it is felt in the human heart. Oh, this is so important. It's so important, especially when we've looked at the, the doctrines of God's sovereignty that somehow, strangely, if you ask me, although I've been guilty, strangely, somehow, we call them the doctrines of grace, and yet we remove the word grace so often when we try to convince people of them. How can't you see this? <laughs> it's not grace. Romans 9, turn back a page to Romans 9, verse 1. I am telling the truth in Christ. Why does Paul do that? Well, Paul, were you lying someplace else? No, Paul does this because it's so important that what he's about to say might seem to be untrue. But please believe me when I tell you I'm telling the truth and I call upon Jesus Christ as my witness. And I tell you that what I'm about to say to you is so genuinely, deeply, and uh, intrinsically true of my heart and my life. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit as I walk by the Spirit, indwelt by the Spirit, but also being filled with the Spirit repeatedly, passionately desiring to be displaced of my own or um, corrected of my own longings and leanings, but filled with the Spirit. This is my desire. This is the condition of my heart. And my conscience testifies, in other words, the, the own essence of my mind with the work of the Holy Spirit in me, that this is true. I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. Now you don't, and I don't either, operate with this mindset moment by moment throughout the day. If you do, I don't want to 
argue against that. Praise God that you do. Praise God that you do. I mean that. But all of us should long to have this mindset to a greater degree than we do. That's my point. All of us should be thinking with this mindset. As Paul has said, I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart. And when you stop and you think about what hell really is and you, you are willing to refute the, the false message of the Seventh-day Adventist movement that says that hell does not exist, it's not a conscious place, but you will cling to what the Scripture actually teaches, your heart will be moved to be engaged faithfully, sacrificially, readily, uh, passionately, consistently, in that which, as far as you understand, will prevent their eternal destruction. And not just sadness and depression, you know, broken arm here and there or whatever, but actual what the Bible refers to as the lake of fire. You don't want that. You don't want that. You don't want that for anybody you love and know. But Paul here is speaking about people who hate him. He knows they hate him. They'd have him dead. But he has great sorrow for them. He has great grief in his heart. But this is for people who had sooner seen Paul dead. He says, for I could wish. Why does he say it this way? I think it's pretty clear. It's because theologically it's not possible. You can't trade your salvation. and You can't give it to somebody. You can share the faith and you must and you should. And I think you do. But you can't, you know, be divested of your salvation on someone else's behalf. But Paul says, I could. I could do that in my heart. I could wish that I myself were accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Can you say that? Can you say that? You must. You must. You must. You must. You must feel this way. This must be the the feeling, if I can use that non-theological term, in your heart. Paul's prayer is felt in the human heart. It's not just a theological delivery. It's not some dissertation that he did for a seminary class. It really is the condition of his mind. He has great sorrow and grief in his heart because he understands. Who understands better than Paul the doctrine of hell? He understands this. He understands that this is where those who reject Christ are headed. And so then, as you know, at this point... Although there is a personal, passionate, internal longing in Paul's heart for the redemption of his Jewish brethren, for his kin, his biological family, the entire race, he then launches into the most specific and comprehensive treatise on the doctrine of election. Having said what he has just said, so he by no means displays the idea that somehow the doctrine of election and the doctrine of evangelism are opposed to each other. The doctrine of evangelism, as we showed you time and time again over the last two months, is rooted in the doctrine of election. There's nothing about the doctrine of election that we should look at and say, oh, I don't like that. We should be dependent upon it. Number one, it's in the Scripture. Number two, it is... The expression of God's heart. Paul genuinely and wholeheartedly believes that the salvation of their lost souls is good. It's good in his mind. He doesn't have this attitude that, (laughs) 
a fellow seminarian to me years ago had where during our preaching lab he preached from the book of First Thessalonians and spoke with great joy over the reality that one day they would get what they deserved. I was, I was, I mean, I'm not even really smart, but I could say, what in the, how did you get that? When God himself, he desires for no man to perish. And you're taking joy in the reality that people who have treated you poorly are going to spend eternity in torment? Please, please don't become a pastor. Please do whatever you possibly can to avoid having influence on anybody anywhere. Please. If that's what you got out of the book of 1 Thessalonians. I, I couldn't believe it. I mean, and praise God, I had an opportunity to tell him what I thought. Because at the end of each message, we would be reviewed by our peers. And as graciously as I knew how, I said, I'm, I am hyper-perplexed by what you've just communicated. And I have no idea where you got this idea, but it's not in First Thessalonians. It's not from the Master's Seminary. It's not from Grace Church. It's you really need to rethink everything you've just said. We must have a heart felt prayer for the lost. And friends, if the doctrine of election is that to which you point to say, that's why I became disinterested in evangelism, you have grossly misunderstood the doctrine of election. And I would raise my hand with you and tell you that I am equally guilty. In times past, that happened to me. But I understand now, to some degree, I hope to an increasing degree, the doctrine of election is well within God's design of his special love, and you and I have the privilege to be actively and effectively involved in a prayer life that leads to the salvation of his lost sheep. Paul so deeply longs for their salvation that he would sacrifice his own soul for them. This is the compassion of Christ upon the others. You know this. Christ looked upon the multitudes. He, he knew their sin. And in some cases, he called it out specifically and still extended grace to them. The woman who had had five husbands and lived with a man who was not her husband, he knew that about her. And what did he do? He showed her compassion. And somehow or another, and especially with, with what's going on in our nation, because, you know, we see so many things on Facebook and elsewhere in the Internet that say, boy, I sure love the country I used to live in, you know, things like that. And I kind of feel the same way. But the reality is what's happening more and more and more is you and I are being provided with an opportunity to be separated from those who claim to know Christ but treat people poorly. What do you think about homosexuality? What do you think about that? Do you get angry when you see churches changing their position and saying, well, it's not such a big deal? Or do you, on the other hand, acknowledge that those are people who need compassion? We strongly and firmly refute the concept of homosexuality as that which is, in some sense, according to Romans 1, the ultimate expression of the depravity of man. It begins with thanklessness. Those who know God but choose not to thank Him ultimately engage in sexual immorality and then ultimately sexual immorality with those of 
the same gender. And so we would say, yeah, that's a clear refutation of the basic elements of who we are created to be. That's a firm and black and white rejection of who God has created a person to be, pretending to be someone of the opposite gender, in a sense. But what should our mindset be? It should be a mindset that is similar to that of the Lord's. There should be a heartfelt compassion for them, for their salvation. And I think a lot of times we bypass that and we run straight to the reality that they're sinning because it's so much more prevalent than other sins. And our heart attitude should be one of compassion. You see, Paul's uh, prayer was felt in the human heart. It was not simply a theological position. It wasn't just part of his doctrinal statement. He longed for the salvation of those who didn't know Christ and had rejected Christ. Stephen Kreloff, in his book, God's Plan for Israel, says this, To Paul, the salvation of Israel was a burden. In spite of Israel's rebelliousness toward Christ, the apostle yearned for his people's salvation. Paul's interest in Israel's salvation was more than a professional theologian's concern. His interest was the heartfelt desire of a compassionate man. This inner desire manifested itself in prayer for the salvation of Israel. Unlike some modern-day believers, Paul never allowed the truth of sovereign election to destroy his prayer life. He never reasoned, why bother to pray? If God saves whomever he chooses to save, how can my prayers be of any consequence? Paul did not see any inconsistency between prayer and the doctrine of sovereign election. Divine sovereignty is not a deterrent to prayer, but an incentive to ask God to save people. For only a sovereign God is powerful enough to overcome the hardness of men's hearts and bring them to salvation. Sovereign election does not eliminate the need to pray for Jewish people to be saved. We need to keep in mind that God chooses not only the elect remnant, but also the means by which they will come to faith in the Lord. The means God has provided are the word of God and prayer. Oh, how I hope you go home changed. Oh, how I hope that your prayer life is, is not just stimulated, but it's informed by the prayer life of Paul. Point number five, Paul's prayer was focused toward God. You, you know that. You know that. Paul's prayer was focused toward God. My prayer to God for them, right? So there was a deliberate effort on his part to actually plead with, to call upon the power of God in salvation. My petition to God, that's what that means. My plea. Paul certainly believed that God could save all of Israel. I suppose he believed that he might. But he certainly longed for him to do so. See, there's a genuine interest in pursuing the heart of God as if God is actually in control and as if He extends mercy and grace and forgiveness and salvation. The prayer is to God. Paul knows and trusts in the fact that God is the giver of all good things. He reveals his own lack of power by looking to God for His power. 
He doesn't lean on his persuasive ability to convince anyone to come to Christ. He doesn't try to persuade children with cookies and candy and movie stars and bodybuilders. He prays to God on their behalf. He does nothing by the flesh to persuade anyone. Paul said to the Corinthians, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Do you see that? You see how when we can be secularly eloquent, that the power of the cross is emptied? The, the idea there is that the power of the cross is not displayed. We don't believe in the power of the cross, so what do we do? We, we entice people. Oh, come to our church. Because, you know, it's better or whatever. I'll say it again. I've said it probably too many times. I'll say it again, though. You'll never be pressured to fill the empty chair next to you or near you. Ever. Ever. Not because we don't want more people. Not because we don't want people in those chairs. But because we want God, by the power of the cross, to save them that they would want to be here to hear truth. You bring somebody to hear me preach, they're not going to like it if they don't know Christ. Fair enough. I hope I hope not. Right? You, the person who is not indwelt by the Spirit of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. So I've got to preach something else for them to like it. So I want to preach what truth is. And so you then and I, outside the walls of this building or wherever we end up, have the great responsibility of communicating truth with your life in such a way that you need to pray. Because you can't do that, nor can I. You must pray. You must pray to God. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. You see that? If we communicate a message to the lost, that they can walk away saying, man, that guy was cool. I like him. I, I like that preacher. He's, he's, he's all right. Oh, how I failed your friend if you brought a friend to hear truth. And they walked away saying, yeah, that was, that was good. And they want nothing to do with Christ. I don't need to be offensive myself. The message certainly is. It needs to be delivered in warmth and kindness and, and grace and an obvious expression of content that God will do the work. And I don't, I don't have to strangle you into believing what I'm saying. You don't have to do that either. You deliver this. You speak the truth in love. But again, in... in uh, in his message to the Corinthians, he, he says, For the word of the cross is folly, it's foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. That's why it's a joy for you to hear me preach. You, you want to hear the word of God. You long to be here to hear somebody, it doesn't have to be me, to hear somebody communicate truth. Because you get joy out of hearing about the cross of Christ that saves you and sanctifies you. It did save you. It is saving you. That's what that idea of being saved is. You're increasingly putting off sin and putting on Christ by the power of the cross. So, so Paul, knowing this, these are Paul's words, Paul, knowing this, needed prayer. And it needed to be directed to the one who could do something because you and I can't do anything. I tried in my driveway for an hour and a half on Friday. <laughs> that guy walked away thinking I was as stupid as he did when I got there. 
So I, I make no effort. I, I've, I make no effort to persuade anybody, really. I, I just won't do it. Here's what the text says. Can we please just stay here? Can we please just stay in this text of Scripture? I know you want to go to other places, but can we stay in Hebrews 1? Well, let me tell you about 1 Corinthians 15.50. Okay, tell me about 1 Corinthians 15.50. Flesh and blood does not inherit the kingdom of God. I said, can we read the whole passage? I just want to stick with verse 50. That's what I thought. What was his point? Well, his point was that human bodies don't go to heaven. And I said, if you look closely at the passage, human bodies do go to heaven. They do not go in their natural state. Flesh and blood in its natural state does not inherit the kingdom of God, but the perishable becomes what? Imperishable. And so there is a bodily resurrection. And they they resist that because why? The natural man, 1 Corinthians 2, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for they are foolishness to him and he cannot comprehend them. He can't. So what do I do? I keep taking him back to truth that he can't comprehend because that's all I have. That's all you have. And when we have given all we have, if it is Scripture, then we must pray. We must pray. Otherwise, we will be tempted to engage in something else that might convince them. You know, it's easy to persuade somebody to ask Jesus into his or her heart or pray a man-made sinner's prayer or declare that Jesus is now the Lord and Savior of their life. But only God can make a dead heart live. You can convince nearly anybody to pray some oversimplified prayer that is not reflective of Christianity. It's not hard at all, really. But only God can resurrect the dead. Only God can cause someone to be born again. This requires prayer. (laughs) Did you see that? Yeah, he ordained the outcome, but he ordained the means, and he ordained that you and I would pray. You must, must be defined as a person of prayer. That really should be the essence of your life, just as your lungs need air. Your, your mouth should need prayer. Your heart should long to cry out to God. Here's some good counsel from the Savior Himself who said in Matthew 6, verse 9, Pray then in this way, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be Your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. John 14, verse 13, Jesus said, Whatever you ask in My name, that will I do. You hear that? Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. You believe that? See, that's a tough saying. So, here's the deal. (laughs) When you've asked something, and you thought you were asking in His name, and it ultimately, over the course of history, doesn't come to pass, you weren't asking in His name. So we, Jesus is not wrong. The Word is not wrong. You and I need to be corrected. We need to grow in our understanding of what is in His name. John 15, 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, He may give to you. 
John 16, 23. In that day, you will not question me about anything. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked for nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, so that your joy may be made full. I had a friend in seminary I lived with for a year. Wonderful guy. A man of real prayer. I would watch him as I would leave in the morning. He, because we, we shared a house with several other guys that were in seminary, he would go to what he referred to as the common room. We always called it the living room. The common room. And uh, put a, a blanket over his head and pray for an hour. And, and over the course of this, the next several years, uh, when I've spoken to him, he would say, Todd, my dad became a Christian. Todd, my mom knows the Lord. Todd, do you remember that friend I told you about that I've been praying for? He's come to know Christ. But you see, we ought not look at prayer as being pragmatic. We don't look back on it and say, prayer works. Prayer does not work. Prayer is an inanimate object. It's not even an object. It's a concept. Prayer does nothing. It is the God of prayer who does the work. Otherwise, in all those instances where you've prayed for something and what you prayed for did not come to pass, you would have to say, oh, wait a minute, maybe prayer doesn't work. Okay, so prayer works and it doesn't work. Which is it? Neither. Neither. God works. Yes, he has ordained whom he would save, but he has ordained that people who love those whom he would save would pray that they would be saved. Do you pray? You must pray. You must pray to God, asking in Jesus' name. And as we said last week, that does not mean by putting a little tag on it saying, in Jesus' name. Nothing wrong with doing that, if that's what you mean. But praying in Jesus' name simply means praying in accord with who he is. As we think of what it is to be faithful in prayer, I wanted to read to you from J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. He says, prayer, as we would believe, is a confessing of impotence and need, an acknowledging of helplessness and dependence, and an invoking of the mighty power of God to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. In evangelism, we are impotent. We depend wholly upon God to make our witness effective. Only because He is able to give men new hearts can we hope that through our preaching of the gospel, sinners will be born again. These facts ought to drive us to prayer. It is God's intention that they should drive us to prayer. God means us in this, as in other things, to recognize and confess our impotence and to tell Him that we rely on Him alone and to plead with Him to glorify His name. It is his way regularly to withhold his blessings until his people start to pray. Ye have not because ye ask not. Ask, and it shall be given to you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth. And to him that knocketh it shall be opened." But if you and I are too proud or lazy to ask, we need not expect to receive. This is the universal rule in evangelism as elsewhere. 
God will make us pray before he blesses our labors in order that we may constantly learn afresh that we depend on God for everything. And then, when God permits us to see conversions, we shall not be tempted to ascribe them to our own gifts or skill or wisdom or persuasiveness, but to his work alone. And so we shall know whom we ought to thank for them, the knowledge then that God is sovereign in grace and that we are impotent to win souls should make us pray and keep praying. Point number six. Paul's prayer was faithful to the gospel. It believes in the power of the gospel by faith and not by works. It is faithful to the gospel And it requires a destruction of the false gospel. You see, as you grow in your understanding of the gospel, you must be more and more willing to destroy false thinking in other people's minds who are willing to give you a platform. Those who think unbiblical thoughts about the gospel and long to know truth want to be corrected. In Titus 1.9, Paul says we are holding fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. This is a requirement for an elder. And what are the requirements for elders? How are they different from everyone else in the church? The only difference is that elders have a higher accountability to the same standard. You must be equipped and ready to refute the false doctrine of a false gospel. Paul's prayer was faithful to the gospel. He says in Galatians 1 verse 6, I'm amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. You see, this is not just a matter of disagreeing. You know, your church believes one thing, our believes another. Uh, You know, well, can't we just get along? No, we can't get along. If a church is devoted to a false gospel, they are accursed. And we must pray for them that they would be aware of the fact that they are deceived. The false gospel is prevalent in our society and it comes in many forms, but maybe the most effective forms are those that look most like the real thing. The counterfeits that are intended to look like the real thing. Paul says in verse 10 of Galatians 1, For am I now seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. You see, Paul's prayer puts no confidence in the flesh or the accomplishments of man, but it believes in the power of the resurrection. Paul says in Romans 10, verse 19, But I say, surely Israel did not know, did they? First Moses says, I will make you jealous by that which is not a nation. By a nation without understanding will I anger. And Isaiah is very bold and says, I was found by those who did not seek me. I became manifest to those who did not ask for me. But as for Israel, he says, all the day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. 
So the message that Paul declares is rooted in a prayer life that is faithful to the gospel, a gospel that the people of the Jewish nation, the nation of Israel, rejected. And so as Paul says here, the fact is that part of what God was doing was to make Israel jealous. That they had rejected the message of the gospel, that he then would turn to a nation who did not seek him. Ephesians 2 Verse 8 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. But you've witnessed and maybe even participated in evangelism where there was boasting taking place. Someone was saying, this is what I did, therefore this is what you need to do. That's not evangelism. Evangelism is an expression of who God is and what He has done, specifically who Christ is and what He has done. That He is holy God who became man on behalf of those who are sin-filled and deserving of eternal torment. But He bore the wrath for them that they would not receive that wrath. And their ultimate hope is in the resurrection that conquers that death and sin. That's the message of the gospel. And Paul's prayer was faithful to that gospel let me finish with somewhat of a a comment or some question of the plan or the pattern by which we planted our church two years ago what we said in the beginning is that we wanted every single person in our church to be committed to our children's ministry somehow some way it doesn't mean necessarily that you you know serve two out of six weeks like like we've asked everyone to do if you possibly can but you're somehow involved in our children's ministry. You're involved in helping others to communicate the truth of the gospel to their children. We need each other to that end. Charles Spurgeon, in his book, The Soul Winner, says this about ministry to children. If we have an evangelistic ministry, it starts with our ministry to children. Any evangelistic ministry that bypasses an evangelistic ministry to children (laughs) has to be blind. Because here we have massive opportunity with young people whom we can teach to sing. And we can teach to memorize scripture. We have the great joy each week to go to our website and with our boys who are still willing to sing still willing to listen to me explain to them the Paul the problem with King Saul still willing to memorize scripture with us even on some occasions they'll say daddy can we go over the memory verse the fact that we have that opportunity as a church in our midst with all of our children for us to bypass that and think that evangelism somehow gets us outside the doors of the church without first being passionately and fundamentally devoted to a children's ministry evangelistically, and I mean every single person in our church, is somehow spiritually blind. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says here. You will see your children converted when God gives you to individualize their cases, to agonize for them, and to take them one by one with the door closed to pray both with them and for them. There is much more influence in prayer privately offered with one than in prayer publicly uttered in the class. 
Not more influence with God, of course, but more influence with the child. Such prayer will often be made its own answer. While you are pouring out your soul, God may make your prayer into a hammer to break the heart which mere addresses had never touched. Pray separately with your children, and it will surely be the means of a great blessing. If this cannot be done at any rate, there must be prayer, much prayer, constant prayer, vehement prayer, the kind of prayer which will not take a denial, like Luther's prayer, which he called the bombarding of heaven, that is to say, the planting a cannon at heaven's gates to blow them open. After this fashion, fervent men prevail in prayer. They will not come from the mercy seat until they can cry with Luther, Vici, I have conquered, I have gained the blessing for which I strove. The kingdom of heaven suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. Matthew eleven twelve. May we offer such violent, God-constraining, heaven-compelling prayers, and the Lord will not permit us to seek His face in vain. Charles Spurgeon is speaking here not to parents. He's speaking to church members who have involvement in children's lives. You and I have immeasurable opportunity. We think evangelism is that which takes place outside the church, and it is. That if we are not devoted to living in light of the gospel in such a way that children could look at us and say, our prayer lives are formed by the gospel, framed by the Holy Spirit, founded in eternal love, felt in the human heart, focused toward God and faithful to the gospel. If that is not how our children, and I don't just mean your biological children, but the children on whom you have influence in your local church, if that is not how they would think of you, then long for the Lord to produce in you the kind of prayer life that would accomplish that. Father, we do pray to you now, longing, longing for you, to help us be people who would agonize over the lost. If we are not devoted to prayer with regard to our own children, much less the rest of the children in our church, and even those who are, are orphans, those whose parents are not involved in their lives, then why would we pray for anyone else? Lord, help us to be a people who believes as Paul believed, that you would save the lost. And so with a passion that revealed itself in allotments of time, carving out time, Paul in his life pleaded with you so that he would then even be able to declare to the Christians in Rome, brethren, the desire of my heart and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Amen.